John 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Well, let us pray for God's blessing upon his word read and preached. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We look forward to hearing it as it is faithfully explained, and we pray that that may be so, and also faithfully applied, for we do not wish to be uh, mere hearers of the word, but also doers of the word, and to the uh, extent that is possible, we pray that you will give us the strength to do so. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I must confess, I'm a, I'm a little bit sad to be coming to the end of the Gospel of John. Uh, it's, it goes without saying that uh, this has been, I think, at least from my own experience, one where uh, there are so many highlights, so many great verses and chapters and so on and so forth. It's, it rightly has a place in the history of the church as one of those uh, gospels that really stands out. And there's a reason that it is handed out so often as an isolated gospel. Uh, and so uh, I'm a little bit uh, sad. I, I wish maybe there were uh, a few more pages to continue to go through. Uh, and uh, it is uh, when you come to the end of, of a book, you, you have to figure out what to do next. Uh, my daughter is telling me each day uh, five more sleeps, Dad, but her five more sleeps is not uh, like when she was little, when Christmas Day will be, but when she comes back. And uh, she went away to Cape and Ray to Bible school, and uh, it was Heather, I believe, who said, you cry when you get there, and you cry when you leave. And that has definitely been the case uh, with Katie. She's already predicted she will be crying when she has to finally leave. And it's over. And it's kind of sad when things are over because then you wonder, what next? What do we do now? And uh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't thought that far ahead as to what next. But I do want to enjoy the last 30 minutes we have in the Gospel of John, because I may never be able to preach through this book again uh, unless I uh, hightail off to some other church and I can double dip on my sermons. Uh, I'm jealous of those pastors who get to you know, leave every three or four years. <laughs> they, they don't even need to prepare anymore. But here we have uh, a somewhat... Some would say anticlimactic 
epilogue. Uh, there's no like sort of grand finale where finally Peter's preaching before thousands. You have to wait to Acts to get to that point, and all of a sudden people are believing on mass. There's a, a sort of a unique conversation that gets relayed, and we have to say, well, why would this be relayed, and what is the importance of it? So you'll notice that Peter turned as he has been uh, walking with the Lord. And remember the context, because context is absolutely essential to uh, getting the most out of this passage. Peter has been told, after he has established his love for Christ and been restored to faithful ministry for the sake of Christ who says, follow me, Jesus then tells Peter, you will go where you do not want to go and you will have your hands, your arms stretched out. You will be crucified in service of my name. And as harrowing a detail as that is to hang over Peter's life for what would be a few decades at least, there is the comforting fact that Peter was told he would die in service of the Lord. And remember the context, the bigger context. Peter had just denied Christ, so maybe Peter's going to be worried in the future he will deny Christ. But Christ is saying, no, you will die in service of me. You will be faithful to the end. Even though the end will be crucifixion, you will be faithful, Peter. And so imagine being told the account of your harrowing death, but also being told that it will be a death in service of Christ. And so Peter is walking with the Lord and he turns and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. We take this to be John. There's really no other explanation as you read this gospel than that this is the beloved disciple John who doesn't identify himself explicitly but sort of gives us enough clues to know he is writing about himself. Now, the beloved disciple has left the group of disciples and is following behind Jesus and Peter, and I think he's sort of establishing the closeness of the relationship he enjoyed with Christ. And so Peter identifies him uh, well as he is walking, and Peter would have known this, but John speaks of himself as the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, so there's no doubt about who this would be to the other disciples. Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Peter knew that was John. John knew that was John. Others knew that was John. Now, when Peter saw him, and this is interesting because as he's walking with the Lord, you would think Peter would be gripped by what he's just been told, focused upon the Lord. But Peter sees John following behind. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about John? What was the context? Peter's told how he's going to die. John is following. Peter turns back and says, uh, yes, and what about him? And I suspect that uh, you will not be surprised to find that Jesus, uh, when he speaks to Peter, uh, you have to count who gets the most rebukes in the Gospels. Uh, I think Peter must be the clear winner uh, for being told off. You know, he's been told, get behind me, Satan. And now he says, if it is my will that he, John, remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, what is the point that Jesus is making? Well, he's making a few points, I do not doubt. But one of the points he's making is that he treats his disciples differently. 
you will know that we are all saved in the same way. We are saved through faith. It is by faith that we are saved. And it is by faith alone that we receive Christ. And we are justified freely by His grace. It is an act of God. Okay, We are all saved in the same way. But God doesn't treat us in the same way. You can go right back to, uh, shall we say, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah going upon the chariot, escaping death, going up. And Elisha, you know, that would be nice. Elisha says, oh, I I like that. Uh, Can I get on the chariot with him? What about him? I want to be like him. God does not give to Elisha what he grants to Elijah. Though he does give to Elisha what he did not grant to Elijah in terms of a double portion of the Spirit. Does anyone here look back behind them and say, and then what about um, Job? Anyone here wish to be Job? Well, as much as you don't wish to be Job, you do wish to be Job. If you can get to the place where Job got to, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you. And I repent in dust and ashes. And Job has everything restored to him. But Job is not treated the same way as others. David. David is not treated in the same way that others. He's a man after God's own heart. And yet, his own son wants to kill him. I tell my boys about this. I says, you know, David's own son wanted to kill him. One of you might want to kill me one day. I don't think anymore after that men's retreat I went to, they see I've come back a new man and uh, better father, better husband, uh, think I'm good for a while. Don't know if it worked for you guys, but I've been on fire lately. Uh, just ask my wife. But David's life is not Abraham's life. Abraham's life is not Daniel's life. Even in church history, you look at someone like Robert Murray McChain, that great Scottish preacher who was known for his godliness, his Christ-exalting sermons, his ministry at St. Peter's in Dundee, and the way in which people all around couldn't help but see how powerfully Christ worked in his ministry. And what does God do before he can turn 30 years of age, takes him to himself? Whereas other ministers can live for decades upon decades... We are not treated the same. And Jesus is establishing this point to Peter powerfully. If it is my will that he remain, that is, he does not die until I come, what is that to you? Now, this was misunderstood. And the reason this was misunderstood is these words had obviously uh, been spoken. And John has to clarify because John did actually live a long life. He uh, wrote uh, the book of Revelation anywhere from A.D. 70 to 90, anywhere in there. So we're talking decades and decades after the death of Christ. So John is around a lot longer. He was a younger disciple at this point. And so all of a sudden, John's living for a long time. And the church is starting to say, hey, maybe this is... The guy that's not going to die. But you see, Jesus was misunderstood because John clarifies, so the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? God is God. 
and he will treat each of his servants as he deems fit. And I will come back to this point a little bit later, but John then establishes that he is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And this may be an invocation of the royal we in just a stylistic way, or it may be John is writing in the context of being in a church with other elders who have confirmed that the testimony he has written down is true. So he's speaking as one among fellow elders, or it may even be that the whole Christian community has been able to uh, speak of these things and there were credible eyewitnesses, and so he's speaking for himself, and yet he's speaking for the church. It's not completely clear, but he does finish in a most remarkable way. He says, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If only we could know what else he did. Imagine hypothetically you were told that you could go home today and there would be a massive volume sitting on your table and that volume will contain things that Jesus did that have not been recorded in these Gospels. How excited would you be to go home and read this volume? You might even skip putting on Oprah and get down to business and open the pages and say, gather around and read this. But you see, the point is, how well do you actually know the things that have been revealed? There are other things that haven't been revealed and the whole world could not contain a bit of hyperbole, I imagine, all of the things that Jesus did, but what about the things that he has done? How well are you acquainted with what he did do? Can you go through all of the Gospels? Have you plumbed the depths of his signs and his wonders and his words and his sermons and his person and his work? Can you say, well, I'm ready to move on? I got an email this week and uh, as a soccer coach, when... And the players say uh, at practice, can we do this? I never, ever grant them their request. Do you know why? You can't have the inmates running the asylum. You can't have these kids think that they can tell the coach what to do because as soon as I grant them their wish, it never stops then. They're always saying, can we do this? Can we do this? And they become the coach and I become the servant. No way that's happening. It's a dictatorship. So I was thinking about how I needed to go through again the Gospel of John and capture the highlights. And then uh, someone said an email, Pastor Mark, uh, do you think as you conclude uh, the message of John, you could give us some of the highlights of the Gospel? And I go, oh no, how do I navigate this now? I wanted to do it, but now she's going to think I'm listening to her and then I'm going to get emails for the rest of my life from people going, Pastor Mark, do you think you could mention um, how husbands can take out the garbage? And uh, do you think you could talk about how wives should be uh, smooching their husbands a bit more and things like that? And you know, everyone's got their little thing they want. So don't get any ideas. I'd already been thinking about this. 
But what about the things that Jesus had actually said and done? What about the fact that we are told from the very beginning something that would have been like a nuclear bomb being detonated among the minds and hearts of Jewish people where the Word, who is God, has become flesh. Not remained exalted in the heavenly places who inhabits the places of eternity, but the One who has actually become flesh. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only One, the only begotten of the Father. The One whom John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The One in chapter 2 where He goes to a wedding at Cana. And it's not just about turning water into wine. It's about removing the shame and indignity of the One hosting the wedding who would have been open to possible lawsuit because He couldn't provide for His guests. And His disciples saw His glory. The one who in chapter 3, not just the one who God so loved the world, but the one who speaks to Nicodemus about being born again. And then we're told God so loved the world. And lo and behold, in chapter 4, you have the bastard offspring of the Jewish people, the Samaritan woman who is illegitimate in their worship and in their beliefs, who is immoral, And Christ speaks words of eternal life to her. And she goes to her town and there is a revival that breaks out. And then there is the miracle in that same chapter of the official's son who simply believed the word that Jesus said. Goes home and the royal official's son has been miraculously healed of his fever that was going to kill him. And then you get to chapter 5 and there's the invalid for 38 years who's been sitting there day after day after day by a pool waiting for the pool of Siloam to start its movement because it was thought that a miracle could happen and yet the miracles before his very eyes take up your mat and walk. And then you get to chapter 6 and not only does he feed the 5,000 but he tramples upon the waves of the sea bringing us back to Job where Yahweh is about to pass by Job on the water And he passes by Job and Jesus enacting that to the disciples is about to pass them by but stops and reveals himself. I am he. You get to the Feast of Booths and it's remarkable because after his discourse at the Feast of Booths in chapter 7 in verse 31, many people believed in him and they said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You get to chapter 8 and he speaks about how he is the light of the world and he contrasts life that he is able to give to his disciples with whom the Pharisees are serving their father, the devil. And then he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones to stone the rock of ages. But then in chapter 9, he does something that no one has ever done in the history of the world. It's never been told that anyone can open the eyes of the blind. And why is that? Not Moses, not Elijah, not Elijah, nobody. Why? Because one who would open the eyes of the blind is the promised Messiah from Isaiah. That the eyes of the blind would be opened. And so when he opens the eyes of the blind, it's not just that he can perform a miracle, it's that he's saying, I am the one who gives sight to the blind. Then in chapter 10, he speaks about how he's the good shepherd and the close relationship between him and his sheep and no one can snatch us out of his hand. And then you get to chapter 11 and Jesus is weeping because he sees death in all of its ugliness and how it affects people. And yet he still is able to say, Lazarus, come out because he is the resurrection and he is the life. Mary anoints Jesus showing her love because of the effect that he is having upon those who love Him. 
But as you keep on reading in chapter 12, he says, while you have the light, believe the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And then listen to this, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The point is, you don't need extra signs and miracles and wonders recorded to you. You have enough. So that you go from the book of signs to the book of glory and Jesus begins to wash His disciples' feet in chapter 13 and gives them a new commandment, which really is a new commandment because He says, love one another as I have loved you. And how has He loved them? He has loved them through His self-sacrificial love. That's real love. Love that will cost Him his life. In chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he speaks of the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. And he gets to chapter 15 where he's the true vine and that there's no spiritual life apart from living in Christ. And he says, no greater love has a man than this than he lay down his life for his friends. And for this reason, the Father loves me that I lay down my life. Chapter 16, again, the wondrous work of the Holy Spirit that He will come to convict the world with regards to sin and righteousness and guilt. That high priestly prayer, you get to see the inner sanctum of God, the triune God where the Son is speaking and you get nowhere else in all of God's Word where Jesus speaks so many words of prayer that you get to listen into. Chapter 18, the betrayal the arrest and Peter's denial. And then you get to chapter 19, which is his death, his crucifixion, and his burial. But then you have that great chapter 20, the resurrection appearances, where Mary sees him and says, Rabboni. Just one word encapsulating really everything in the Gospel. Rabboni, because it is the one who is God in the flesh, who is her teacher and then to the disciples, and then chapter 21, they go fishing, and yet another sign, as they are told they will become fishers of men, they capture all of these fish at the mere command of Christ. The point is not, I wish there was more right now that we had been told. The point is, to what degree do you know the Son of God who has been revealed to you in these pages? That's the point. And you have to remember, God is still doing His works. Jesus said this in His discourse on the Holy Spirit. Greater works you will do than these. Than these signs. And what are those works? The works are... And listen very carefully. Jesus turning water into wine is an act of His power. But Jesus turning sinners into saints is an act of His own life being laid down and raised again. That actually cost Him. To merely turn water into wine for the one who is the Son of God is simply an act whereby He commands and it is done. But when He turns you, a hell-bound sinner, into a heaven-bound saint, it would come at the cost of His life. That is a greater work than any of the works. And you are recipients of that. And it is all around for you to see. Now if I may just conclude by a point of application that I want to come back to that I hinted at earlier. And that is Peter has what I think is really incipient in all of us to some degree. 
And the people who I trust most in this world are children. Why is that? Because children will audibly complain about how they are not being treated as well as someone else. What about him? What about her? Do you have children who complain about this? It's going to happen on Christmas, probably to someone in this church. I remember Josh one year, he got, oh, he had a terrible Christmas. I had a terrible Christmas too once. All the presents just, they went sideways. This is before I got married, so nothing to do with my family, but just one of those Christmas, just went sideways, you know? And we joke about it now, it's quite funny. But one year, Josh, he just, he just didn't get great presents. It's just bad luck. What about him? What about her? Look what he got. And you know, I kind of like that about kids, is they're just honest about, well, not only how sinful they are, but they just they tell you what's going on. But we get older, we get more sophisticated, and we start to say things in our hearts where we wonder, why is it that God seems to bless that person so much? Why does that person have it so easy? Why are they succeeding and I'm not? What about him? What about her? You see, what about this person is actually something that not only Peter asks, but that we also do. The parable of the two sons in Luke 15 is really this issue. The older son can't understand why the father would treat the younger son this way. And yet, what does Jesus say to Peter? What is it to you? I wonder if you'll just indulge me for a minute as we conclude. Peter's walking, talking to Jesus. He's been told of how he's going to die and all of that. And then he asks about John. Just imagine for a moment the Father speaking to the Son. Just as Jesus had spoken to Peter that he will one day be crucified. And the Father says to the Son, you will go to a place you do not want to go. You will go to a place where you do not want to go. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was our Lord who said, remove this cup from me. He did not want to go to the place where he would be abandoned and forsaken by his Father. And yet, just as Christ has said to Peter, you will stretch out your hands, the Father had said to the Son, you will stretch out your hands. You will go to the place of darkness and you will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the Father would say to the Son, this is what my will is for you. And it was a singular, distinct will for the Son that no one else can comprehend what the Father had for the Son. Why is Jesus able to do this? Why is Jesus able to say to His disciples, what is it to you? Because He Himself had to go through that with regards to His Father. What is it to you? And Jesus walking on that road with His Father, looking back at you and I, imagine saying, what about them? What about all of you sitting here? What's going to happen to them? Well, they're not going to die on the cross. And they're not going to go where they deserve to go. In fact, they're going to receive what they do not receive. They're going to receive grace and mercy and you're going to receive justice. 
They're going to receive eternal life. They're going to receive everything freely given to them. And you see, that's because He is the Lord. And you're sitting here because the Father did say to the Son that the Son would go to the cross. The Son would go to the grave. The Son would be the one mocked and ridiculed. And it would not be you. And that's why Jesus has every right then to say to His disciples, you will do what I have for you to do as my servant. And we find perfect freedom in knowing that our Savior is speaking to us as one who went to a place that we could not go, to a far more excruciating place for our sake. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your mercy to us through Christ, how you could give us so much worse than what we receive and yet we sometimes still in our unbelief wonder why us? Why do we go through this? Why do we go through that? And why do others not? And yet we fail to remember that our Savior went through the worst for us so that we could go through the best. So we pray as we close with this gospel that we will be those whom John has written to, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and but by believing in Him we have life in His name. Pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.